everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansberry, and on today's show, we're going to be taking a short break from our housing affordability series to talk about a very important upcoming election. That's right, Austin has an election coming up on November 2nd, and early voting actually starts on October 18th. So what the heck is going to be on the ballot? If you live within Austin city limits, you're going to have two very important propositions to vote on, Prop A and Prop B. Now, that's not to be confused with the Prop A and B we just voted on back in May. One of them was about homelessness policies. This is an entirely new election, and so we have two new props. Okay, let's start with Prop A. Here's what it's going to say on your ballot. Quote, Shall a petitioned ordinance be approved to enhance public safety and police oversight, transparency and accountability, by adding new Chapter 216 to establish minimum standards for the police department, to ensure effective public safety and protect residents and visitors to Austin, and prescribing minimal requirements for achieving the same, at an estimated cost of $271.5 million to $598.8 million over five years. End quote. And so what the heck does all those words mean? Kind of like the homelessness proposition, which was Prop B back in May, this new Prop A is the result of a citizen petition drive run by Save Austin Now, which was that same group. Um, Save Austin Now's board includes Ken Cassidy, who's the president of the Austin Police Association, Matt Makoviak, who's the chair of the Travis County Republican Party, and Cleo Patricic, who describes herself as a Democrat, and she's also the co-founder of Save Austin Now. So what would this ordinance do if it were passed? What happens if Prop A gets passed? I'm going to let our guests dive a little bit deeper into like all the weeds on this, but I just want to give you an overview before we get too far into it. So here's what Prop A would require. Uh, First, it sets a floor for the size of our police force, mandating that Austin always have two police officers per 1,000 residents be employed at all times. It also makes sure that officers must be able to dedicate at least 35% of their time to community engagement. This is commonly known as community policing, and it basically just means that officers must be able to spend at least 35% of their time not responding to emergency calls or doing paperwork, things like that. Prop A would also require an additional 40 hours each year of mandatory continuing education and in-service training for all sworn officers employed by the department. It also would create a program designed by the police chief to be created to enhance recruiting and retention of officers by providing incentives in the form of additional compensation or compensatory time for officers that speak multiple languages, mentor cadets, and for, quote, officers in good standing and eligible for an honorable conduct citation or equivalent recognition every fifth year, end quote. And then the last thing that would happen if Prop A passes is It requires that the mayor, council, and their staff, as well as the director of police oversight, have to participate in the city's ride-along program and attend and complete the Citizens Police Academy, which is a 14-week-long program designed to give the public a working knowledge of APD. The ordinance also says that those folks can complete the Citizens Police Academy or an alternative program developed by the director, but it's a little unclear about exactly what that would entail. And it also says that any volunteer serving on the city's public safety commission or the community police review commission would also have to complete these trainings. And just for a reference here, the public safety commission is a volunteer group um, to city council and it advises them not just on police, but also our city's fire department and EMS. Okay, (laughs) so that's a bit of the basics of what's included in Prop A. 
in a little bit. I promise we're going to get to our guests. But first, I want to lay the groundwork some more and do some fact checking and fact sharing before we get too deep into it, because as I'm sure you can already tell, this is a highly controversial issue. A large coalition called No Way on Prop A has already formed to fight back against Prop A. And by now, I'm sure many of you have already gotten flyers in your mailbox or read things on social media with lots of contradictory numbers and information in them. So we're going to start by breaking down the four big areas where I've been seeing a lot of misinformation and confusion out there. So that's one, our city's murder rate. Two, our city's crime rate. Three, our police department's budget and four APD's staff size. Okay, so first, the murder rate. In September, Austin passed a grim milestone. We marked our 60th murder in one year, which is more than has ever happened in the 60 years since APD has been keeping records of that. And all of this is coming off the backs of 2020, when we had 48 murders, which was more murders than we've had in a single year since 1995. So that's not great. But what's key here is not just to look at the number of murders, but the murder rate. That is, how many murders are taking place in comparison to how many people actually live in Austin. Because the truth is, there are a lot more people living here than ever before. So, so far this year, our murder rate is 6.2 murders per 100,000 residents. Last year, that rate was 4.7. So the 6.2 number is definitely higher than what we've had in recent years. The last time we had a rate that high was in 1997. But back in the 80s and 90s, our murder rate was regularly higher than that. In 1986, it was 10.7, and in 1990, it was 9.9. So you get the gist here. So then why does our murder rate seem to be spiking right now? You're going to hear our guests debate that because it's kind of at the core of this Prop A conversation, but just to set the scene a bit, here's what the Austin American Statesman reports newly appointed APD Police Chief Joseph Chacon said after this year's 60th murder. Quote, This is about us truly becoming a big city. We are starting to experience big city problems. Having said that, I still think that among the big cities, that we remain one of the safest in the country. We have officers who are going out and doing amazing work every single day, and we have a community that is engaged, and they want to help public safety to make sure as a community we are staying safe as we possibly can. End quote. And here's a bit more from Chief Chacon, this time as reported by KUT. Quote, Chacon blamed the rise in murders on several factors. He pointed to a corresponding increase in gun violence and what he classified as a shortage of police officers. He also said a number of murders had been committed by people who have been arrested and then released on bonds. Since 2018, the number of full-time sworn officers employed by APD has decreased by 5%, or about 100 officers. And then here's a quote from Jacone. Officers are running from call to call and do not have an opportunity for proactive police work, Jacone said. That has decreased officer presence and has provided opportunities for people to commit these acts of violence. End quote from Jacone. And then the KUT article goes on to say, when asked to further clarify his comments, Jacone said that many of this year's murders started as, quote, interpersonal disagreements, and that if officers had been able to intervene earlier, the incidents might have not turned so violent. Okay, next up is the crime rate. Another way to think of this is just, is Austin a safe city? You've probably heard people asking this question a lot lately. Now, there's a lot of debate about what it means to be truly a safe city, 
And a lot of the recent reimagining public safety work that's been happening in Austin has been directed towards how to think of safety in new ways, including access to health care and mental health services, economic opportunity, jobs. Um, and of course, the big question here when we talk about public safety is always safe for who, right? But just to set a baseline of understanding here, if we look at like the textbook, more traditional definition of safety, it's often about crime rates or the number of crimes committed in a city in a given year. A new report from the Texas Department of Public Safety, which looked at the numbers from 2020, found that Austin ranked 38 in overall crimes out of the 41 largest cities in Texas and 28th for violent crimes. And when looking at violent crime, which includes things like murder, rape, robbery, and assault, Austin experienced less violent crime than Fort Worth, San Antonio, Dallas, and Houston. And this is after cuts were made to APD's budget. And then, you know, when it comes to crimes of all types, not violent and nonviolent, Austin experienced less crimes than San Antonio, Dallas, and Houston. The only large city in Texas that consistently performed better than Austin, according to these safety metrics, was El Paso. So when you compare us to other big cities, we're pretty safe. Okay, and now on to fact check number three, the police department's budget. A lot of debate over Prop A hinges upon how much we used to spend on APD and how much money we spend on them now. So let's break that all down a bit. Uh, many of you probably remember in the summer of 2020, Austin City Council voted unanimously to make some major changes to the police department's budget in the wake of nationwide protests in response to the killings of George Floyd and here in Austin, Mike Ramos. That year, the city received 37,000 responses to its online budget survey, largely from people calling for cuts to the police department's budget. Um, in a quote-unquote normal year, that number, as far as how many people are uh, responding to the budget survey is somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000. So a big jump. We had a lot of engagement. And in the end, here's what those budget changes included. Here's what City Council voted on. $21.5 in immediate cuts to APD's budget that were then spent on EMS services, COVID response, and community health paramedics. $80 million was then put in a decoupling fund to try and move certain APD roles into independent civilian-run city departments, and these included things like the forensics lab and the 911 call center. Um, so these were not intended to be cuts to services, but simply a change to who was in charge of managing those services. And then the last bucket was $49 million uh, removed to a reimagining budget. And these were programs identified by council as programs that were currently run by APD but could be eliminated or changed dramatically after an extensive research or planning process. And these included things like parks or lake patrol, uh, mounted patrol, which is police officers with horses. So in other words, $21.5 million was truly cut from APD's $434 million budget, which was about a 5% cut. And then two APD functions, the 911 call center and the forensic lab, were moved out of APD, or were at least in the process of being moved out, until this past spring when the Texas legislature intervened and they passed HB 1900, which is a new law that says if a city has a population over 250,000 people, if the city that large funds its police department at a lower level than it has for the past two years, it will face a whole host of consequences, including the inability to raise property taxes or collected sales tax revenue. So basically, 
it had the effect of rolling back a lot of the recent changes that city council had made to the APD's budget. So this year, the police department's budget was pretty much fully restored and then some to $442 million. That's a larger budget than in 2019 before APD's budget was cut. In 2019, the police department budget was $432 million. And um, this past year, again, it was $442 million. And just to put things in perspective a bit here, all told, the police department budget consumes about 37% of the city's $1.2 billion general fund budget. It's the single largest component of the budget, and um, which is fairly common. You know, in many cities, the police department's budget is the largest component of their budget, um, but it's also been obviously a topic of great conversation and debate lately. Okay, so that's police spending. Now I want to talk a little bit about cost estimates for Prop A. Our city's budget office uh, recently released some low and high end estimates for the cost of Prop A, which and the reason between the difference between high and low is how many officers would be needed to comply with the ordinance, um, really depending on how quickly Austin's population grows and how many officers we would need to staff two per thousand and then also ensuring that we had enough Um, officers that could spend 35% of their time on community engagement. So there's kind of a range there in how many officers we would need to hire that we're just not sure about, right? If our population increases a lot, we would have to hire more officers. And then kind of depending on staffing, there might be some other changes in there too. Either way, the low end cost estimate from the city's budget office was $271.5 million over five years with an average annual cost of $54.3 million dollars. And then the high-end cost over five years was $598 million, with an average annual cost of $119 million. So, again, you have low-end per year, $54 million about, high-end per year, $119 million. Of course, unsurprisingly, there's been a lot of conversation over this price tag, which you'll hear our guests discuss and debate in a bit. But um, just for some basic reference points here, Um, If we went with that low-end estimate, that would be a 12% increase in APD's budget compared to the the one we just passed this year. And on the high end, it would be a 27% increase. And then again, just for more context, because it's hard to visualize what all these large numbers mean, that low-end number of $54.3 million is slightly less than the entire Austin Public Library budget for one year. This past year, it was $60 million budget. Um, And then it's also uh, a little less than half of the Parks and Rec budget. So this past year, our entire Parks and Recreation Department budget was $112 million. And then, of course, if you look at that high-end number for what Prop A could pass, which is $119 million, that puts it actually at more than the entire Parks and Recreation Department budget for this year. Probably unsurprisingly here, Save Austin now has said that they dispute the city's estimates. Um, or at the very least feel like the low-end estimates are more accurate. Um, In a September 30th article in the Austin American Statesman, they said they plan on releasing their own cost estimates soon, um, and they note that rising property values could help to pay for Prop A. Um, But either way, I think the key thing to think about here is just that there's real money associated with Proposition A. It's going to cost something. Everyone agrees on that. And It really comes down to a choice, which is a lot of what Prop A is about, is do we want that extra funding to go to police? And that's kind of like at the core of the debate here. And that leads us to our last fact check, staffing. Um, This, again, is central to the debate we're having here. 
So how many police officers do we have right now? Um, here's what a recent article written by Ben Thompson for Community Impact says, quote, while APD's funding is set higher than ever, its officer count remains well below its current capacity. Of the department's budgeted 1,809 full-time sworn officer slots, the department tracked just over 90% filled as of mid-August, and staffing dipped even lower at points over the past year. A surge in departures also accompanies the vacancies, with separations doubling from 72 in 2019 to 144 in 2020. 89 were tracked as of mid-June. End quote. So why do we have all these vacancies? In a word, like retirements. People are leaving APD in record numbers, which fits a trend we're seeing nationwide. As the Austin American Statesman reports, quote, a national survey in May by the Police Executive Research Forum found a 45% increase in retirements and nearly a 20% increase in resignations compared with 2020. End quote. So these vacancies have created some real headaches for the police department and response times have gone up and the police chief has chosen to move officers from specialty units in order to fill these gaps. However, this does not seem to be a permanent problem. Cadet classes were postponed last year as council and community members work to improve the academy and it has reopened and new officers are currently being trained, but The training process is long and the next batch of new officers won't be out in the field again for several more months. So we do have the funding already budgeted and reinstated to have more officers on duty than we do now. Um, But there is this lag time as cadet classes start to fill in some of those vacancies and gaps. Okay, (laughs) that was a lot of data and numbers. Let's move on to our interviews now. Uh, first up, we have Cleo Patricic. She's the co-founder of Save Austin Now, who put Prop A on the ballot. And let's just start with the basics. Um, when you are describing to folks what Prop A would do, um, what do you say? What's kind of the, the bullet list you run through as far as what would happen if Prop A passed? What's included yeah. in the resolution? So, um, um Prop A ensures adequate staffing. It requires a minimum of 2.0 police officers per thousand population. This is the nationally recognized standard for safe cities, combined with a minimum of 35% community response time or uncommitted time, or what we call community policing. Uh, It doubles police training, an additional 40 hours post-cadet class training hours per year. Uh, making Austin the national model for police training. Um, there, there will be no other police department in the country that has more, uh, 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 more trained officers. Uh, it enacts police reforms. It includes provisions to boost minority hiring through foreign language proficiency, ensures racially diverse community policing, and provides retention bonuses for officers without police complaints or uh, what we call good conduct medal uh, eligible officers. So this isn't pay that we just give across the board. This is something that we want to uh, retain good officers, encourage good officers, and encourage uh, officers that mentor other police officers. That's a part of the uh, the package too. Mm-hmm. And so let's start with the staffing component, that um, two per thousand number. Um, where does that come from and why do you all feel like that's necessary? Right. So back in 1998, uh, police staff, the, the staffing levels, that, that is where we are now. 
Um, and obviously we're in 2021 and we've grown 25% uh, in, in since that time. Uh, this is something that is untenable. Uh, even the city cannot dispute that we need an adequately trained police force and an adequately staffed police force. Um, we now have police officers experienced, trained in detectives, uh, in specialized units, gang prevention, uh, our traffic enforcement, our uh, uh, you know career criminal unit, and juvenile at risk. All these specialized units are now either disbanded or these officers have been uh, placed in uh, patrol or are have resigned uh, and gone to other police departments where they can use their skill set. Uh, that is very, that is really unfortunate. I'm a former probation officer. I work with at-risk children. And the one thing that I can tell you that prevents uh, crime is having specialized units that can target uh, areas uh, through uh, 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 investigation, uh, prevention, and also prosecution. And we don't have that capacity now. Uh, we won't know for you know months down the line the 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 even the more severe impact of not having uh, experienced officers uh, in these specialized units. So Dallas has 2.4 officers per thousand, and Houston has 2.9. Um, this is something that uh, is recognized nationwide. Uh, almost all, uh, you know at least the top 11 cities, we are the 11th largest city, have the at least 2.0 threshold. Um, um, that is something that you know can't be disputed. Um, when Officer Chacon, excuse me, not officer, forgive me, uh, Chief of Police Chacon uh, in a press conference when he was asked about the, the murder rate explosion here in just one year of 74%. Um, he gave several reasons why we've had an increase. One was the, uh, the uptick in violent crimes through the PR bonds, the personal recognizance bond release. These individuals are, uh, are charged with a violent crime and then they're re-released and recommitting violent offenses. Uh, also illegal uh, guns on the streets, something that uh, we, our anti-gang unit and, uh, you know, gun, uh, uh, un uh, specialized units that can either investigate crimes or have a police presence to get illegal guns off the street would impact this. But also uh, Chief Chacon indicated that the staffing crisis was a reason why we've had an increase uh, uh, of homicides and also the 12% increase of aggravated assaults. All of this ties into uh, police response times. Um, if I may, uh, you know, I'm a victim of a crime. I was, I, I'm a victim of an aggravated assault when I was a probation officer in Dallas. And I cannot tell you how impactful this has been for me that our response time for priority one, that is police stabbings, murders, um, uh, shootings, usually before this defunding was a 7.5. And in fact, the city wanted to get that even lower. It is now 10 to 12 minutes for a priority one call, okay? I cannot tell you how, I mean, it makes my, my, my skin crawl thinking that a victim has to wait one second longer for a police officer to show up to, to you know, basically like my situation, save my life. Um, this is horrific. And what impacts me the most is that the victims of these crimes, the, the city council nor the mayor never talk about. They also, the, the victims of 
just like the homicides, uh, 61 of the homicides that we have had 65 now, but of the 61 homicides, 72% have been black and brown victims. Um, these are communities like that I grew up in that have been on the front lines, just like with the encampments encroaching, encroaching in their neighborhoods. Now we have the, them as the victims of these violent crimes and murders. The mayor will say, or the city council or no way Prop A people will say, oh, but you know, uh, the, the police would have never deterred that. That's not true. Only 10 of the 61 homicides were in the home. The rest of them were in the community, stranger to stranger, where at even Chief Chacon says, uh, having police presence, having investigation of gun crimes, having these low level crimes of assaults that aggravate to a murder or a violent crime that's more serious. If we don't, if we don't have police uh, investigating, prosecuting, getting these types of uh, preventing these types of crimes, then absolutely these will escalate to a murder or a gun crime. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you know, you, you talk about, I, I think, and, and I hear this a lot is that, you know, sometimes that the, the impact or the fear would be if we, if we're cutting police, like you mentioned that certain communities, especially mar already marginalized communities might be hurt the worst, but I, and I, and I hear that, but at the same time, I think it's hard to argue, you know, it's like the, the local NAACP, the Austin justice coalition, you know, all of these major organizations that are representing those groups, the city council members that represent those districts, um, you know, and, and the people who voted for them have said, um, no, like we right. do feel like the police needs to, you know, we we could use a little less police presence in our communities because we feel like we've already been over policed or we need a different kind. Like what's working? You know, I, I think it's hard because it's like if everyone received, I think, the the quality police service that I think many people in our city do receive, then this wouldn't be an issue. But there's still that question of, you know, we did have thousands of people like march in the streets a year ago and unanimously city council agreed with them that we have a problem with police violence and that we do need to make changes like this feels like a bit of a rolling back of that. Yeah, I disagree with that. Um, you did have uh, a lot of members of the community, but not all the community uh, protests and even in city hall asking for uh, reform. I was one of the ones I've, I have spoken at Black Lives Matter rallies, um, but this has nothing to do with that. What the city council did was defunded our police. Our president, who I voted for, is against defunding the police. Exactly why? Because it's created this chaos, especially in communities like I grew up in. Low-income neighborhoods have been disproportionately hurt by the skyrocketing homicide rates, excruciatingly long 911 wait times, the police staffing crisis. Um, and uh, I'm here to call that out. N not only that, it's not an either or proposition. We are not saying uh, we are going to turn into a police state, which is another thing that they say as a fear mongering tactic. I'm a Democrat. I, and I'm also a probation officer. I chose to go into probation because I absolutely believe we should be uh, impacting communities where they are, offenders trying to rehabilitate them in their home uh, if, if it's possible, and using drug treatment, mental health, and other, you know, job uh, second chance hiring, all those kind of things none of that will be taken away. Um, this is something that we can do. We can do both. Can I, I want to ask a little bit about the Texas legislature, because I think this is another question that gets popped up a lot when people are talking about this is, you know, the Texas legislature 
uh, did pass uh, a law this session saying that basically Austin and, and other cities that uh, might have reduced funding to their police department, um, that they had to reinstate those funds, basically. And so, you know, my understanding is that the police department budget that was just passed um, for in 2021 um, is the largest police department budget we've ever had. So, you know, I guess probably I'm sure a question you've received before is given that reality, why is this proposition also needed? Right. Because not not one part of that budget uh, specifically targets staffing and that placing that as a priority. We need adequate staffing. We need to have it just like uh, uh, Bob next to fire union. They have, I, I think it's four per box, four per, per emergency vehicle. That is a standard. And I think they passed that years ago. Um, and that's an accepted standard for them. For us, we want the same. We want this protected. That way no one can touch that. And it's just something as a taxpayer, we have a right to have that. Um, if they think that we need to go 2.5 or that I, from talking to people on the police staffing um, committee with the APD, they're thinking they're actually going to go higher than that. So what we were just asking for a baseline, 2.0 is not more staff, more police. We're just asking for the nationally accepted standard. Uh, and when you think about our tax property tax increase for every, every year for the last four years, uh, it's increased anywhere between 50 to 60 millions every year. Our proposal will add either 35, uh, you know, we believe it's about $35 million more to the, to the budget um, if it's fully implemented. However, just like with Prop B, the city council uh, delayed implementation. Uh, we're in October and they still have not arrested one person or uh, they're barely now uh, cleaning encampments. So this will, like you mentioned, take time to fully staff a police department and they'll have to get creative. But I, I absolutely do believe that if the voters overwhelmingly decide that police having an adequately staffed, supported, and actual reform like our, poly, like our proposition does, uh, it, if it is uh, passed, you know, this will be a mandate that the city council cannot ignore and take seriously. And that is what I want, because right now the city council is not taking the staffing crisis seriously. Mm -hmm. Do you know, uh, you, you might not know the answer to this, but like given the fact that we did reinstate the police department budget and we do have a larger budget now, like why is that not going to staff? Like, like, <laughs> like, where's that money go? Do you know what I mean? Like right. if, oh. if we have increased our police department budget, then like, why do we still have 300 open police officer positions or why isn't the hiring like, cause technically we've said we'll allow more police officers to be hired. So it's like, it all, it's weird. It feels like we have the money. Right. But they're not, they're not, uh, I, I would urge you if you ever get a chance to talk to any mayor, to the mayor or the city council members to ask them, that question, that's a really important question. <laughs> Why are you guys not taking this seriously? Why are we not addressing uh, the staffing crisis on a, uh, you know, on a red alert? Because why would we want detectives doing patrol work when we need them you know, solving crimes and preventing new crimes? Um, that is really serious. And, the, and for me, sadly, um, it is because they do not wanna talk about, because the more they talk about that, the more they look incompetent that they're mm -hmm. not taking it seriously, that there is a crisis. Um, but you, you know, talk to average uh, person, they, we've all either had a 
situation we're running with, uh, you know, in our, in our neighborhood chat rooms, you know, there, there's constant crime now that, that wasn't like this two years ago. And they cannot explain it away just with because of population growth, uh, because this wasn't happening when we had growth two years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, the murder was not like this two years ago when we've, we've had an explosion in, in, in uh, how, you know, housing and, and, and the need for that for years. Yeah. I want to talk about some of the other things that are in the um, proposition uh, besides like the staffing and stuff. So you mentioned uh, there's also some police training. Do you want to talk about that a little bit and kind of why what that what exactly is included there and, and why you all felt like that was important? Yeah, um, Matt attended um, the last uh, police officer, Austin Police Association um, meeting, um, and uh, there was more than 100 officers there, and he asked them, you know, raise your hand, uh, whoever, who, if anyone thinks that, you know, you've been adequately trained, and no one raised their hand. Now, this is not an indictment on, you know, mm-hmm. our cadet academy or, you know, the lack of, uh, of, of adequate training they just do not have enough time. And a lot of their training, if you look into it, is behind a computer. It's not real life scenarios. I was, I was given, I was, had the opportunity to attend a, 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 a real action uh, a, a, a shooting scenario with uh, real life uh, ammunition and real life scenarios. And it was, uh, this is something that Austin police does not uh, have. And it's something that they, they, the, the police, the sheriff's department and other a- agencies in, in Travis County, they do because uh, they believe that if you train officers while they're in that stress state and you constantly do that, you, 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 you're able to you identify where the, the officer, uh, you know, need, either needs better communication skills or better uh, hand-to-hand combat where you're not having to use, you know, resort to your gun. Uh, all these kind of things uh, we do not do in Austin Police Department. And these are things that I absolutely believe we need. I talked to one of the sheriffs that um, after he went through the scenario, he killed the victim. That was in the training scenario, the the. And he basically said, here, take my weapon, take my badge. I don't deserve to be a, a police officer anymore, you know, because, you know, you don't want the first time you go through a crisis situation like that to be actually the real scenario. You want it to be repeated over and over, drilled into you, how you respond, how you're able to save the victim, how you're able to try to deescalate the situation if possible. And you don't want those situations actually happening in, in, in real life. And that's what's happening uh, and with our police force now, and what's really sad is that because 96% of our police shifts are understaffed, that means only 4% of our, our units right now are fully staffed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that you are having overworked, understaffed police officers respond to crisis calls. I don't want that. I don't want a tired police, stressed out police officer that knows backup isn't coming, responding to a, a possible shooting scenario. Mm-hmm. I, I realize now that we we haven't really done um, any defining of community policing. Um, so it says in here, 35 percent of this like uncommitted time, which I assume is this community policing model. Can you just explain for folks if they're not familiar with that? What does that mean and what's kind of the hope behind having that 35 percent uncommitted time? Right. So that's, you know, not responding to crime uh, uh, or excuse me, not responding, uh, uh, not involved in paperwork, you know, uh, the 
uh, uh, or on a back. call, right? Like yeah, it's exactly. like they're not right, responding. Call and, you know, we want it to be a relationship building, trust building with communities. Um, you know, there's the police athletic league. There's, there's the, like tonight's national night out. There's, there's, uh, ways for, uh, sectors of the police force in different parts of Austin to have these types of, to have time like this in a positive environment um, to, 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 to build those, those bonds of trust that ha absolutely have been broken. We do not want over-policing, but we do want policing in communities. Um, and, we, and, and if you speak to, like I've spoke to, this, to communities in East Austin that have suffered because of the staffing crisis, they absolutely want more police, uh, especially patrolling at night. We do not have a DU, uh, a fully staffed DWI or a, a traffic enforcement unit, and uh, road rage and DWIs have skyrocketed because of this. Uh, we need the, the police to be visible, um, but we also want police to be in in neighborhoods building that trust back. You know, what's like kind of like the simple way that you kind of talk about why this is important to you, why you've dedicated your time and your energy towards this. Um, yeah, I absolutely, as a mom, believe that every community in Austin should be safe. And I believe that two years ago, uh, a lot of the communities were safe. However, I do believe that our city council made it uh, less safe, especially for at-risk communities um, that have been on the front lines of encampments encroaching their areas and also with uh, increasing crime and poor uh, slow response rates from police. Um, has impacted them most severely. Um, and uh, I, I, in, in, I speak to moms all over Austin. I have members from every single, moms from every single district in Austin, and they all agree. Um, uh, it is not the Austin that they remember. And it wasn't like we're talking about, you know, 20 years ago, oh, when I was a child. No, we're talking about just two years ago, how radically different our city is. And we cannot blame it on the pandemic. And uh, and a population growth. Uh, those two things were happening. The the population growth was happening, uh, you know, for more than two years, at least the last ten to fifteen years. Uh, and the defunding of the police is something that even our own president did not support. This is this is something that I I I I. I I, you're right. We should not talk about it in in the from the political lens. Uh, but if you talk about average people raising families, running their first business, um, it has impacted all of us. And it is exactly because the city, uh, you know, slashed the budget and slashed uh, police officer uh, positions and hasn't responded to that quickly or, mm -hmm. or seriously. And I believe that having this mandated. Uh, in, an, in, in our ordinance and having majority of Austin vote for it will require the city council to finally take it seriously. So that was Cleo Patricic. Next, we're going to shift gears a bit and hear from the anti-Prop A camp. This next interview is with Bill Spellman. He's Professor Emeritus at the LBJ School at the University of Texas, where he has studied policing and police staffing. And he's also a former Austin City Council member. Okay, let's give that interview a listen. Um, I wanted to start out with the big one that I feel like has been in the headlines a lot lately, which is the murder rate. Right. Um, and so there's been a lot of concern about the number of murders rising this year. Um, but there's been some confusion about murder 
the raw number versus the murder rate. So I thought maybe we could start to break that down. My The latest number I've seen is that uh, 60 people have been murdered in Austin this year about. That sounds so about right. Yeah. And so can let's how do you start to explain this for folks? Because we do this, see this. It is true, right, that murder, the raw number of murder seems to have jumped in Austin and in most cities across the country this past year. Correct. We just got the uh, FBI uh, data for 2020. It has been roiling around the, the, the hallways of the FBI in D.C. For, for months and months now. They finally released it to the public and uh, showed that nationwide all over the country, we're seeing an increase in homicide of about 30%. It's a little higher in big cities like Austin. The average among big cities uh, is about 33%. Austin's was 36%, which is perfectly normal, perfectly, not perfectly normal. 36% or 30% increase are abnormal in the extreme, but we're about the same as other big cities in the United States and other big cities in Texas. So we got a nationwide murder uh, increase that all of us are facing right now. Right. And obviously, I'm sure there's lots of conversations as to why that is. But I would have to presume that the crazy year we've had with the pandemic must impact that in some way, or it's just been an odd year in other ways. So if you look at the timing of the increase, you find that there was no increase in murder in the first few months of 2020. It's only after reopening started in depending on which city, which city and state you were in in the late spring of 2020 that you saw the increase in murder. And so I think it's very much associated with reopening people finally getting out of their house for the first time, but in a weird social environment that did not resemble the environment they were in before. Everybody's patterns have been disrupted. Everybody's on edge. uh, And I think people are just becoming more violent because they're so anxious. Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned, this is something that um, we've seen in pretty much every big city in the country. And that's regardless of whether or not their police staffing numbers or if they've cut their police budgets or um, this is like a a trend across cities or is it unique to certain cities? I looked at, it's not unique at all. 90% of cities saw an increase in homicides. Um, I looked at three classes of cities based on the number of police officers they had per thousand population, basically how, how heavily policed are they? Uh, Austin's in a middle group. It's between like 1.75 and 2.4 police officers per thousand population. And for people in that group, for cities in that group, the homicide rate went up by between 30 and 35%. But it also went up between 30 and 35% for heavily policed cities like Washington, D.C. or Atlanta, which had more than 2.4 officers per thousand, and went up by about the same amount for lightly policed cities like San Jose and San Diego that have less than 1.7 police officers per thousand. So it didn't look like the number of cops you've got had any effect at all on the homicide increase. It just went up. Yeah. And then another thing they talk about here is um, 911 response times, which is another one I, you know, I, I see thrown about on social media quite a bit. Um, and the, the claim here is that our 911 response times have gone really high. Do we, yeah. what kind of data are you seeing there? And how do you feel like that impacts our like general safety, I guess, as well as. There's, there's two kinds of, of incidents that police have to respond to. There is a very, very small number of incidents in progress, incidents where the perpetrator is still at the scene, uh, incidents involving somebody who has a medical emergency that the police need to respond to very, very quickly. 
faster is better. Three minutes is better than five minutes is better than 10 minutes. That's a tiny percentage of all 911 calls, less than 5%, probably closer to two or 3%. Uh, the vast majority of 911 calls do not require a particularly fast police response. It's always fast, better to get there sooner rather than later. Even if it's a cold burglary call, I walk into my house and realize I've been burglarized. If I call the police, I don't need a police officer there in three minutes, but it would be a lot easier for me if I could get an officer there in half an hour or less, because if I don't want to touch anything to mess up the fingerprints of the tool marks or something like that, it's really inconvenient to be sitting and waiting for a police officer to show up. But it's a convenience factor. And most of the time, if the operator says, we won't be able to get a police officer out there for half an hour, will that be okay? People say, okay, I understand you're busy. You got serious crimes to deal with. Uh, I can live with that. Um, so if we look at the two to 5% of cases that you really need a police officer like blood right away, the response time is considerably lower than 11 minutes. Now, exactly what it is depends on how you divide it up. And I, I'm sure this is the Save Austin now guys are gonna divide it up differently than I divide it up. The key issue is can a police officer who's doing something else break out of what it is that he or she is doing if there is an emergency and then go off to that emergency? One of the problems we've got is they no, now aren't doing that. They're not asked to do that by the operators and the dispatchers. And if there is an emergency and we want a short response time, we need to have everybody available to respond to the emergencies. Right now, we don't. Other people are going off and doing other calls which are less urgent. We need to be able to pull them off the less urgent calls and put them on the emergencies so that we can actually reduce that response time for the very small percentage we need a short response time to a minimum. Hmm. Is that a, a new thing or just the way we've always done it here in Austin? Well, we've always done it because we have always had plenty of officers and a growing number of officers on patrol. And the number of calls is flat. The number of total calls that the uh, Austin Police Department responds to hasn't changed appreciably in 25 years. And that's not the call rate per person. That's the just number of 911 calls that we dispatch a police officer to. It's the same as it was 25 years ago. But we've got 85% more police officers on the street to respond to them. The reason response times are going up right now, one of the reasons they're going up right now is because everything, everything's a little bit disrupted um, <clears throat> for a whole bunch of reasons, which we can get into maybe if you're interested. But we do have few, we did have fewer police officers on the street. To put more officers on the street, APD had to take detectives and other people on special assignment to special units out of their special unit and put them back in patrol cars. They're not, it's been a while since they've been in a patrol car. And so they're a little bit less efficient than the guys who do it every day. That's part of it. And part of it is they were using the same old routines, which made sense perhaps a few years ago, do not make sense right now. Um, we need, I think, every police officer to recognize that urgent calls require a very fast police response, but less urgent calls do not necessarily require a fast police response. And to clearly differentiate between those two so we get the fast response for that small percentage of cases where we really need it. Okay. So it sounds like what you're talking about here is a little bit of a community choice that if we decided, you know, it could be true that some of our response times are up, but perhaps that's something we might choose as a community in order to divert resources elsewhere, as long as maybe we can fix a, a few more things to allow for that emergency response or those few percentage of calls, like you mentioned, that we decide we do want police at as quickly as possible. I think that would be a very good trade-off for the vast, vast majority of us, yes. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so that's the response times. And then the other one is uh, police staffing levels. And so in that quote, you know, they said 1999 levels, we've been hearing all kinds of numbers. And I believe in the um, ordinance that's being proposed, it the goal is to get us to two police officers per 1000. Well, it's a little more complicated. Okay, than that, right. Two officers per 1000 is a baseline under which you can never go. Okay, as the city continues to add population, we're going to continue to add police to get to that two, four, two per thousand. That's what Proposition A requires. And we're not at that now. We're below we're that. Not at, we were at that a couple of years ago, but because of uh, a lot of people, uh, there was a delay in the police academy last year, uh, and a lot of police officers retired because they were being asked to, to work overtime. And a lot of them said, to heck with it. I've done my 20 years. I got a full pension. I'm out of here. So we've seen more retirements than usual in the pandemic, not just in Austin, but all over the country. Uh, police officers are retiring at higher rates. So we have fewer officers on the street. Um, but the staffing level increase going back to two would basically get us back to the levels of a couple of years ago and a little bit more for increased population. But the big problem from my point of view with Prop A is the second provision, which says we have to have enough police officers on the street to ensure that those patrol officers can spend 35% of their time on self-initiated activities or citizen engagement. Right now, our citizen engagement levels are highly up for grabs. I've seen lots of different numbers on that, but it's not 35%. The idea is that 35% of the time, I should be able to get out of my car, knock on doors, go to neighborhood meetings, talk to people on the street if I'm a patrol officer. It's always a good idea. Right, not responding to calls. Not responding to calls. The problem with that is if you're mandating 35%, you're not sure what's going to happen with the response end, right? If our calls stay flat, I'm a patrol officer. I've got calls stacked up, say, three or four calls after the one I'm working on right now. That means I'm going to run through this call as quickly as I reasonably can. They go on the next one, they go on the next one, because I want to work through my, my queue of calls. If that queue gets smaller, because we've got more police officers on the street, Maybe I'll work through that call just as fast as I would have if I had a long queue, or maybe I'll say, yeah, I can take an extra few minutes on this cold burglary call and be sure that I've made the victim feel better and I've, I've filled out all the, the gaps in the report really well and so on. If it takes a little bit longer to do the things we're currently doing quickly, that means that the citizen engagement numbers may not, may not increase at all as we put more police officers on the street. Work expands to fill the time available. I got a little bit more time available. I might use it to do a little bit better job on the street on, on the calls I'm taking. And that's gonna take away from my ability to do citizen engagement. Now, the problem then is we're gonna to need to put more police officers on the street because people are working a little bit more slowly and carefully than they were before, which means we might need to put more and more before we finally hit that 35% number. And the only way that Prop A gets us to that 35% number is by adding more and more police officers, not by urging the sergeants and the lieutenants to say, guys, get with the program, fill out the burglary call and go on to the next call because we got a lot of stuff to do. So it's possible we're going to end up with 2.5 or even more police officers per thousand to hit that 35% number, which is why the cost numbers from the, uh, the budget office of the city are anywhere from 50 million to 120 million per year for the next five years. We don't yeah. know what that number is going to be. It is certainly not going to be 2.0. It's going to have to be higher than 2.0 to hit that 35. 
Do we know kind of where our current police staffing numbers fits, like puts us compared to other cities in Texas? Like, are we running outside of the norm currently? Um, we're not outside the norm. We're a little bit leaner than the average. Uh, but there are a lot of police departments in Texas that have fewer officers per thousand than we do. Um, now, if I, if I quote you too much, then somebody's going to look back and say, ah, that's not true anymore. But as of a couple of years ago, El Paso was running at fewer officers per thousand. San Antonio was running at fewer officers per thousand. Uh, rather famously, Fort Worth, Houston, and Dallas are running at more officers per thousand. The smallest number in any big city in the United States is uh, uh, San Jose, which has 1.1 officers per thousand. Um, and it's, of course, it's controversial in San Jose like it would be any place else, but they seem to be able to respond to their calls and deal with their crime problems with only 1.1 officers per thousand. And they're still one of the safest cities in the United States. At one point, they were safer than Austin. Mm -hmm. When we say um, safe city, yeah. Wait, when do, how do we usually classify that? I, I know it depends, obviously, but sometimes you, you hear these like things that get fact checked, you know, like the mayor says we're one of the safest cities and then the governor will say Austin is the least safe city. Like what does safe even mean usually? <laughs> well, it, I'll tell you what it usually means. I'll tell you what I think it ought to be. Uh -huh. What it usually means is, are you safe from, uh, what are the risks of homicide? And in that respect, if you just look at homicide, the likelihood of a homicide is lower than Austin than it is in, well, than it is in the average of Texas, than it is in the vast majority of big cities nationwide. El Paso, actually, your, your risk of homicide is lower than in El Paso than it is in Austin. It's lower in San Jose. I think it's lower in San Diego. There's a few places which are safer in that respect than we are, but not many. Most of them are less safe. I think though safety is too narrowly construed if we're only looking at homicide. You also need to be safe from suicide. Uh, and there are social conditions which cause suicide rates to be higher in some cities than others. We're just right dead even for that. We are no safer, no less safe for suicide risks when you adjust for age and other things in Austin than anywhere else. So we're not particularly safe from suicide. We're not particularly safe from traffic fatalities. Uh, our traffic fatality rate is about dead even with the rest of the country. Um, we, ought to, we ought to broaden our construction of safety to include something, other things that can happen to you other than just homicide. And if we do, we're less safe than we appear just from homicide. It mm -hmm. means we need to do some things to reduce our traffic fatality risks. We need to do something to reduce our uh, suicide risks. Uh, we need to do things to reduce our fire risks. I mean, all that stuff counts. Mm -hmm. um, okay. I want to talk some about funding. That's You mentioned that. That's been, I think, uh, one of the big points of debate um, here. And so, you know, our city's budget office uh, came out with this guesstimate of, let's see, the lowest, the lowest projection was, I think, 271.5 million over five years, or about 54 million um, a year. And then on the higher range, they said it could be up to 598 million or 119 million a year, um, in addition. And to me, that seems like a lot of the people who are against Prop A, that's a big concern or seems to be like the like that is a one of the things that seems to be bringing together this coalition of people who are against it. Is that accurate? Like, can you talk some about this? What why these numbers concern you? Well, let me, let me put this in context. Um, every year, unless there is a recession, every year, property tax assessed values go up. And so property taxes go up. 
we usually sell a little bit more stuff inside the city of Austin. So our sales tax receipts go up. And if there's development, there are development fees and other fees that come into the city. All that adds up to something like a, a $50 million per year increase year over year in receipts to the general fund, which can be spent on general fund agencies like police, fire, EMS, parks, and libraries. So we get $50 million more million coming in. Ed Van Eno, the budget officer, says this is going to cost you $50 million at a minimum, and it might cost you as much as $120 million a year uh, just to cover the cost of Prop A. And this scares people who worry about fire, EMS, parks, libraries, and everything else in the general fund, because that means that all the additional funds that would come into the general fund would have to go to the police. There wouldn't be enough left over to go anyplace else, and that's the best case scenario. It's more likely that the police costs would be more than $50 million, and whatever comes into the general fund would not be enough to cover it, which means we'd have to lose 10, 20, as much as $70 million per year from all the other general fund agencies, parks, EMS, um, fire, libraries, codes compliance, a lot of other stuff. Um, that, that's what's scaring a lot of people, I think, is seeing a reduction in all the services provided by all those other uh, general fund agencies. How it would be distributed among those agencies, we kind of know because we've been through this drill with recessions. First, you close the pools, then you close the libraries, uh, then you reduce the number of people in codes compliance and maintenance of parks. Eventually you get to not increasing and maybe even decreasing the number of EMTs on the street. I don't think we're gonna get as far as that, but we might if the costs of, of the, this police proposition are high enough. In the minimum, however, I think it's very likely we're looking at closing of pools and uh, a reduction in maintenance of parks. We've mm -hmm. seen this before. And that's probably what's gonna happen again. And that bothers a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And and so like when we look at the the budget component, um, how does it compare, I guess, to what we've been spending on police budget? Because I think there's been a lot of confusion about what we currently spend on police, what we spent on police like a year ago and what we spent mm -hmm. on police maybe four years ago. Because it seems like a lot of the call now is we want to return to a situation like before we quote unquote defunded the police. But my understanding is that with recent Texas legislature legislation, we've basically refunded our police. I know our staffing might still be low because we had our academy paused for a year. But can, can you break some of that down for us? Like when we like, how does this proposal compare to what we have spent historically on police? Well, first, recently? Amy, thank you. Thank you for putting quotes around defund because the police <laughs> were never defunded. Uh -huh. um, what looked from the outside like a defunding was just a moving around of people who were still doing the same job they were doing in exactly the same way. The operators and the dispatchers were pulled out of the police department and put into a separate department. There were still the same people doing the same stuff. Okay, now they're back in the police department, but the numbers for the police department have gone up and down, but the actual uh, ability of the police department to do its job hasn't changed appreciably. Um, the numbers are going to have to increase uh, if we put more police officers on the street. Uh, and we're going to have to put more police officers on the street without uh, the possibility of reduction because of the law that uh, the legislature just passed. You, you, you ratchet upwards, but you can never ratchet back downwards again. So it's always going to be an increase. That increase is going to continue even if conditions change. If crime rates continue to go down as they have since 1991, 
if our property rate crime rates in particular continue to go down as they have since 1991, uh, we won't need as many police officers because there won't be as much work for them to do. But we're still going to have to spend ever more money on police because it's mandated by the legislature that it can never go back down again. More important from my point of view, since police get first dibs on the entire general fund budget and everybody else gets whatever is left over, if we've got an emergency, it's gonna be really difficult for us to respond to it because we can't cut police. And if we've got an opportunity, um, something comes up, which is a, a great service, which people really want to take advantage of, it's gonna be difficult for us to gin up the ser that service because again, we won't have the money to be able to spend it on it. So it, it makes the budget much, much less flexible and harder to balance. It makes it very difficult for the city council to balance among competing priorities in the way that they've been doing for years. I think it, that's one among many is one of my more wonkish reasons for wanting Proposition 8 to go down because I don't want this to become um, something that people think that they can do is change the budget by citizen initiative. We're going to have changes in the budget by citizen initiative all over the place. And it's going to make it impossible for uh, the city council and the city, city manager to balance among co uh, competing priorities. That's what they're supposed to do. That's what we elected them to do and they won't be able to do it anymore because it's all got to be set by some initiative someplace. Yeah. And and so, you know, when you're talking to the general public or about this, you know, I think it, it's been this crazy few years, right? And Austin, I feel like a lot of Austinites feel under stress. We've had the pandemic. It feels like our city is changing really fast. It feels like a lot of new people are moving here. You know, I think there's a lot of concern over us, like losing our Austin kind of vibe or whatever. And it just feels like things are changing fast. And then we did have like a lot of social change and protest and city council is doing all this stuff. And I think it's understandable for, for a person to be like, I don't know, like Austin does seem like it's changing. Do we have enough police? Like, is this working for us? And and I'm curious, like what you say to that person, not like maybe the extreme, whatever, but like the that kind of Austinite as someone who's opposed to Prop A, you know? Before I, before I get to that, let me say something wonky first and I'll see okay. if I can translate it into yeah. what I would say in everyday conversation. The wonky thing uh, is a response to what you, if you talk to Matt McCoviak, you probably heard him say, this is the worst staffing crisis in the history mm -hmm. of the Austin Police Department. And it's not because we have twice as many officers doing exactly the same work as they were doing 25 years ago. In terms of resources and needs, this is not a staffing crisis at all. But it feels like a staffing crisis from a police officer's point of view, because we have a command structure. We have an institutional structure with a lot of special units in it. Um, We've got a beat structure. We've cut the city up into lots of little beats rather than a smaller number of larger beats where it feels from their point of view like we have a staffing crisis because we don't have 2,000 police officers anymore and we have a department which is set up for 2,000 police officers. Mm -hmm. If we had 2,000 police officers, it wouldn't feel like a staffing crisis because everybody would know their mark and everybody would be where they expected to be. But because there's been a reduction in the number of officers, but there hasn't been a reduction in the number of special units, the number of beats, the number of lieutenants and captains and so on, then it feels like everything's a little bit short. Um, the wonky way I would put this is, do we really need to have all those special units, all those uh, mid-level managers and all those beats? Probably not. We got away fine without all that stuff 25 years ago when we had the same workload the same demand on police officer time. 
we've added a bunch of stuff which is useful to have, but not strictly speaking necessary to meet the workload. And if we backed off of that a little bit, it wouldn't feel like a staffing crisis from police officer's point of view, and it would not be using up as many resources as Prop A would have us use. We can get by on fewer than two officers per thousand. Our needs are exactly the same as they were back when we had half as many cops. We can do that, but we're not ready to do that right now. We're gonna to have to right size a lot of little things in our department, like the number of mid-level managers and the number of special assignments before it's gonna make sense again. And that was Bill Spellman. Next, we're going to hear from Chaz Moore, founder and executive director of the Austin Justice Coalition. The Austin Justice Coalition is heavily involved with the No Way on Prop A campaign, which is the group that formed to oppose Prop A. It's a large coalition that includes the Travis County Democratic Party, Texas Campaign for the Environment, Black Lives Matter Austin, the Austin Parks Foundation, Housing Works Austin, the ACLU of Texas, the Sierra Club, and many others. Okay, let's listen to that interview with Jazz. I thought maybe to start, let's just run through the basics of what Prop A is and, you know, why the Austin Justice Coalition is organizing against it. Um, so it seems like some of the, the key provisions of this proposition are like a mandatory policing staffing level and then also um, a mandatory amount of time that police can spend like doing I guess, non-call related items, right? So it's like a two to a thousand staffing level and like a 35%, I think, non-committed time, right? Is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, so so I, I think Prop A is dangerous um, for a few reasons because one, uh, when, when Save Austin now was going around get signatures, um, they, you know, they were just lying to people about what this actually was. They were telling people, that this was for training and um, diversity hires and, and all this type of stuff. But um, it, it's not. It's really just to um, increase the staffing levels, like you said, uh, two cops for every thousand resident, um, which would which would quite literally mean that the city would have to hire between 400 and 500 cops within the next 45 years. And the price tag on that is just ridiculous. Um, you know, and and even if you are like a super pro cop person, it's like, you know, at what cost? Like, are, 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 are people so pro cop that we want to take money from parks and rec and all these other things that make Austin um, this beautiful city that it is just in the name of, um, you know, quote unquote, public safety. So, you know, I, I, I really think that's the most um um dangerous thing about this proposition like you know save us now is not being honest about how much this is going to cost um and how much th this will quite literally you know bankrupt the city if, if if this thing passes and i think that is the sole reason um why well i know that's the sole reason why we are um so heavily organizing against this and making sure people know that you know you know, in the name of public safety, this is not the right thing to do. Like we, we need resources and money um, to be able to do public safety in a holistic way and not just put it all into the police department. So, you know, yeah. like, it's, you know. And, you know, one of the things that seems like I've heard from the Save Austin Now team is 
I think it's being couched a bit of like um, a reinstating of the way our police operated two years ago or three years ago, kind of before we um, really started vigorously on this reimagining public safety effort um, is how they are framing it. But really, this is an expansion of even the police force we had prior to then. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Th- this is this is the police department. Um, on steroids, if this ain't passed, this is like a, a conservatives, you know, hard right Republicans dream version of a police department. Like this is, you know, I, like if this thing passes, Austin would quite literally turn into a police state. And I think the thing about it um, is that there's no proof at all anywhere that more police equates to more safety, right? Like, um, there are places like New York where they have the two to two to one rate, two per thousand ratio, um, you know, cop to resident thing. And, you know, New York crime rate is is astronomical compared to Austin's. Right. So um, this is all, you know, anti Black Lives Matter, all anti um, reimagined public safety. This is all Trump era esque politics like i mean that's that's literally all it is there's no science behind it there's no data behind it this is just republicans trying to um cling on to whatever perceived notion of power that they think or believe that they have yeah you know one of the things that's interesting to me about this is like you know and, and the process has been difficult and and gone back and forth but you know our community has been working on thinking about how we want our public safety apparatus to operate, you know, for the past, well, many, many years, but, you know, like I said, the past two years really in in high focus, and we've done this reimagining public safety process. And this initiative is really designed to subvert that in in many ways, you know what I mean? It It would completely, it seems like, undo all of that work that's been worked on by by many, many people in the community. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think, um, you know, it, it, and it's kind of like that Jordan meme for me. Right. You know, I, I'm, I'm taking this personal um, because, you know, if, if again, if this thing passes, that means that um, a couple of things. It means that everything that we've um, put into the conversation around public safety and policing um, is either, you know, it's just false or people, you know, people in the city of Austin just really didn't buy into it. Right. Like it quite literally rolls back all of the progressive stuff that we have done in the city in the last five, um, probably five, to maybe 20 years, um, you know, before I even got in the picture. But, you know, I, I, I think we as a city of Austin, like this is going to be um, a true look in the mirror. Right. I think Prop B was was the look in the mirror for us. And we I, I'm still surprised that that thing passed the way it did. Um, but also, you know, it was games and semantics that went that went into that as well. Like they were telling people that this was going to help our unhoused neighbors and this was, you know, going to help the housing crisis and, and all these things. But, you know, it, it was literally just to get people off the street because we didn't like looking at it. And I think that vote um, and that turnout was not who we are as a city. And I think if if this passes, um then all the things that we think about Austin are just not true. Like maybe we aren't this progressive liberal city um, in the South, right. That, that we think we are like, if, if this passes, we are 
we are just as red as every other part of Texas. And I think, uh, at least I hope, I, I, I hope that we come out strong and I hope that we come out and say, you know, yes, you know, crime seems to be, although it's really not, but cr- crime seems to be at a, at a different place than it was um, five, 10, 20 years ago. But this is not the way, right? Like we have to find different ways to reduce crime, um, get people the help and resources they need while also making sure that we have, um, you know, a, a, a sufficient or, or efficient police department. But just putting four to 500 more people in the police department at, 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 at the cost that it's going to cost, um, I believe isn't the Austin way. And, and I'm, I'm hoping people come out and, and, and vote to prove me right. And then just to close, kind of in summary, you've, you've mentioned it here, but when you're talking to people, about Prop A and really talking about what's at stake here, what do you say or, or how can we frame it? Because I do think, you know, part of the thing with these all these ballot initiatives is people get worn out, right, or confused about what's happening. And, you know, this is like the third Prop A we've had in a year. <laughs> and um, what, what, do you, what do you say to folks to put this in perspective about why this is important and why you feel like people should be showing up to vote? I mean, honestly, the main thing is, is, is this is just like so fiscally irresponsible and, and it, it will, it will really put a damper in the city budget. Like it will put, it will put a, a tremendous dent in the city budget um, on all the things that we, that I believe we care about as a city, like, you know, parks and rec, libraries, that already don't have money, um, you know, our springs, our animal shelters, all this stuff that we care about will be hard to invest in if we put, you know, this estimate, you know, 450, 500 million dollars into the police department. So, you know, like in, in like this is not an anti-cop um, opinion, right? It's just like, yes. You know, like me personally, do I think we can live in a world without police? Absolutely. Is that world anywhere close? Probably not. But I also know that um, the only way we can get to a world where people feel safe is trying new and different things, right? Like police do not, like it does not automatically mean safety for everybody. And I think, you know, making sure that we have resources to provide these things that mean safety for other people, which is community spaces, which is a park, which is a pool, like a spring or a pool. Um, I think that's important. And I, I really think that um, we have to come out and say, um, do we want a, a better police department? Yes. Do we want to put all the money in the city budget into it? Absolutely not. Like we have to find different ways to approach safety and public safety um, together. And, and, and this is not it. Like this is a small group of people that is saying all the hoopla around um, cop accountability, police accountability, wanting better police departments, wanting transparency is, is all just like lies and conspiracy. And, and they're trying to call us crazy. They're trying to invalidate the voices of people that have been harmed by, um, you know, police violence. And I, I think if, if, if this is a city that truly says Black Lives Matter and all these lives matter, then we need to come out and, and vote no and, and let them know, like, hey, th- th- there has to be another way and this is not it. 
And that was Chaz Moore with the Austin Justice Coalition. And that just about wraps up Prop A. So we're getting close to the end of the episode now, I promise, but we still have one very important ballot item to discuss, which is Prop B. Don't worry though, Prop B, while very interesting, it's not nearly as controversial as Prop A. Here's what it's going to say on the ballot. Quote, Shall the city council be authorized to convey or lease approximately nine acres of parkland currently used at the central maintenance complex located at 2525 South Lakeshore Boulevard through a public bidding process where the total value of the bid is equal to or greater than the appraised fair market value of CMC in exchange for a minimum for at a minimum one at least 48 acres of waterfront land contiguous to an existing city park and two the cost or construction of a new maintenance facility for the Parks and Recreation Department on other city-owned land, and three, partial or full funding for the removal of Fiesta Garden's existing maintenance facility and restoration of that land to parkland, end quote. Now, what the heck does all of that mean? To break it down for us, let's listen in on an interview I recorded with Mark Littlefield, who is a political consultant that's helping out with the Pro Prop B campaign. Okay, let's give that a listen. So let's get into it. <laughs> Explain what Proposition B is. You know, um, I've seen the ballot language and it's a little, it could be a little wordy and confusing as a lot of times right. these ballot languages are. So explain it kind of in simple terms. What would Proposition B do if it were passed? If Proposition B passes, then the city council will be allowed uh, to trade or sell or lease uh, nine acres at 2525 South Lakeshore Boulevard uh, to someone who would have to do three things in order to um, to win the bid. Uh, they would have to uh, 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 give to the city of Austin at no cost to the city of Austin uh, uh, at least 48 acres that is next to or near both a body of water and an existing city park. And they would have to give enough money to build a new central maintenance facility to replace the one at 2525 South Lakeshore Boulevard uh, and enough money to restore back to parkland another maintenance facility on Fiesta Gardens that will be moved if a new one is built. So uh, if this passes, uh, then um, in November, then after that, the city of Austin would um, uh, would announce a request for bids, and uh, and Co-op Radio could bid on it. And uh, but if they did, and they'd want to, you know, uh, have a shot at it, their bid would have to include those three things: forty-eight acres at no cost to the city, uh, near water, near a park, uh, money to build a new maintenance facility at wherever the parks department says to build it and money to restore uh, the smaller maintenance facility back to parkland there at Fiesta Gardens. Got it. And, you know, this obviously will go through a bidding process. That's how all these the city things work. But kind of some of this conversation is being spurred on by there's interest by Oracle, right? Like there's, there's the Oracle is wants to do this <laughs> or has expressed interest uh, in this uh, idea, right? So the, the nine acre tract of land that we're talking about at on Lakeshore Boulevard is right next door to contiguous to adjacent to the Oracle World Headquarters on Lakeshore Boulevard. Um, uh, so this, uh, this nine acres is a, it's a maintenance yard. It's surrounded by a metal fence and inside of it is 
gas pumps, maintenance sheds, cars, trucks, lawnmowers, weed whackers, you name it, in various, you know, uh, states of repair or disrepair. Um, there's no public access to this land. Um, it's not used as parkland, but since it's on the roster of land that is owned and controlled by the Parks Department, therefore it's considered parkland. Therefore, if, you know, the city wants to alienate it, uh, sell it, lease it, swap it, it has to go per state law and city charter. It has to go to a vote of the citizens. Got it. And we can talk about um, some of what the additional land benefits could be. But first, you know, I'm wondering, has Oracle expressed their interest in this nine acre piece? Like, what do they why do they want it? <laughs> so, like I said, they moved uh, a few years ago. They moved their world headquarters from California here to Austin uh, and they built a campus there on Lakeshore Boulevard. Um, uh, and this would just be for the expansion of their campus. Um, if you've been to that part of town, they don't do high rises. They don't do, you know, uh, big concrete blocks that stretch over the entire block. Um, it's low rise buildings. It's, you know, preserved trees. There's, there's public access through their campus for people who want to jog, stroll, walk, whatever. Um, so they don't have specific plans for what will go on this nine acres, but they do have a plan that this will be a part of their campus. Got it. And this, just to be clear, this is on, it's on Lakeshore Boulevard, but it's on the non uh, Lake Austin, you know, Ladybird Lake part. It is, right. it's um, not on so the parkland. It's on right. the other side so, of the road. Thank you very much for saying that. So if you, um, uh, if you think that right there, that section that Ladybird Lake runs uh, east to west, uh, uh, the water flows west to east, but but if the river flows west to east, then Lakeshore Boulevard is parallel to it. Also, you know, running west to east, and uh, on so on the north side of Lakeshore Boulevard is City Parkland. Um, it's the Metropolitan Park uh, of Ladybird Lake, and then on the south side of the road is the Oracle Campus and this nine-acre plot of land. Got it. And so, you know, one of the big things here then is, you know, potentially swapping, selling, et cetera, this, this nine acre piece and gaining a 40 acre piece of land. Can you talk about right. where that parcel is um, as so, is kind of being imagined in this sure. swap right um, now? Uh, so, when or uh, so when Oracle first contemplated, you know, this and, and started talking to the Parks and Rec Department, um, it was uh, the, the Parks and Rec Department uh, identified a couple of tracts of land as a want or a need. And one of them was something called the Driveway Austin Property. That is not a unique name because they literally drive cars around this property. Um, uh, it's kind of a, a mini racetrack, not like Circuit of the Americas, but basically for amateur car enthusiasts to work on and train and race their cars. Um, um, uh, there's a 1.7 mile track on the 48 acres. Um, it is on the east side of 183 in between 183 and the Colorado River. Uh, it is along the shore of the Colorado River. Uh, uh, maybe it's the bank of the Colorado River, not the shore. Um, it is uh, adjacent to the uh, Johnny Trevino Park. Um, uh, also down Delwa Road towards Driveway Austin is Urban Roots. Maybe your listeners are familiar with where that is. Um, if you've ever been to the Velloway mm -hmm. near uh, Lady Bird Johnson Wildfire Center in Southwest Austin, this is what it would kind of remind you of. And this is the likely use of what it would be if the Parks and Rec Department controlled this piece of property. Uh, 
Um, uh, it would help connect access between um, the Little Walnut bike trail that runs near there, uh, John H. Trevino Park, the Bowen Road District Park, access to the river. It would kind of connect all of that infrastructure together. Um, and uh, uh, it'd be a great place for 5K races, 10K races, bike races, uh, marathons, triathlons, instead of uh, for nonprofits or organizations to have to pay the city fees in order to close streets every time they want to have a race, this could be another alternative option for them. Um, it also has infrastructure out there. It already has you know, water, wastewater, uh, electricity. So there's, um, uh, it could be used immediately as, you know, for, for recreation. Um, and unlike the Bellaway in Southwest Austin, where they are really hardcore about making sure that you stay on the track and don't get off into the environmentally sensitive areas, this would be a place where there could be more, more uh, park trail development and amenities uh, on the 48 acres. Great place for farmer's market or something like that, for example. Um, but that's why PARD wanted it. Um, uh, and um, uh, it would be a part of a bid if Proposition B passes. Okay. So, and, and, and includes, like you said, that, that track that might be good for like a cycle track or a running track or whatever you want to use it for. But then also you are talking about 48 acres of parkland that's along the Colorado river, right? Like that's right. another big draw that we would have. Cause right now, I guess, you know, we have Roy G, which is along the Colorado river East, you know, East of the dam there, but we don't have another city park that's right there. Or I guess, or I guess Trevino, is that a, a Travis park? No, so Trevino, so, so Trevino is, um, uh, is very much lacking in a master plan and a master plan that's been funded. So, um, uh, Trevino is a very large park. It's a city park, but it is, you know, not seeing the investment that it needs. Um, and so hopefully, um, this 48 acres and, and this addition would help kick that off, would mm -hmm. help, you know, would help restart, uh, uh, and, and provide an emphasis for that. Right. And so I want to talk a little bit more about the size of this uh, for comparison for people. I've seen some things on the website that say this could be kind of like the biggest tract of city park land that we've acquired in a long time. Like, can you can you compare this 48 acres? Yeah, how much yeah. is that? Good. So there's a good friend of mine named Mike Blizzard who, who just texted me this morning. He goes, that's not actually right, Mark. You know, we've had bond elections before. We've added hundreds, not thousands of acres. And I go, you're right. You're right. What it should say is. Uh, uh, the largest tract of land donated to the city of Austin um, uh, without, without, without the taxpayers or city having mm. to pay for it. Um, so um, uh, I think it was Roberta Crenshaw about almost 50 years ago who donated the land for Guerrero Park mm. along the Colorado River. Uh, and so this would be the largest addition to park land since then, um, you know, that was uh, donated or given to Got the it. city this way through a swap. Yeah. And then the other big component of this is um, some changes to Festival Beach, right? Because the idea would be there's currently a maintenance facility there that um, is inaccessible to the public. It's not really being used for park purposes as we think of it. It's used by the Parks Department. But the idea would be to remove that, that facility, right? And kind of exactly. open up more so, acreage there as well, right? Exactly. So the uh, the larger maintenance facility uh, uh, is on Lakeshore Boulevard, and it doesn't it's it's not big enough for PARD. Uh, it's not really centrally located for them. It's not convenient for them to cut through all these neighborhoods and 
try to meander in and out of Riverside Drive in those neighborhoods to get in and out of there. Um, so, uh, so they want a, uh, a bigger facility somewhere else. But they want a new facility that's big enough to also take the employees and the equipment and the work that's done at a smaller maintenance facility on Fiesta Gardens. Um, and so when this if Prop B passes and uh, when the new maintenance facility is built and open, then everything and everyone at the Fiesta Gardens facility will move to the new facility and the Fiesta, uh, and the Fiesta Gardens facility can be returned to Parkland. And to be honest with you, that was something that, uh, uh, that the Parks and Rec Department added to this you know, proposal, uh, added to the Proposition B ballot language um, kind of you know, late in the summer um, as, hey, as long as we're doing this, let's make sure we have enough money to also restore this. And um, in our uh, uh, and in the conversations with people uh, about Proposition B, yes, they're excited about 48 acres. Yes, they're excited about you know new infrastructure over there. Um, uh, uh, voters aren't really crazy excited about a central maintenance facility. Uh, mm-hmm. They like it that that they might get one for free. But to be honest with you, the restoration of of uh, Fiesta Gardens has been the most popular part of this. Hmm. And so can you talk a little bit? Yeah. So, so it would mean gaining back some parkland there at Fiesta yeah. Gardens, which is obviously like location, you know, a great, a great park location. Cause it's right there on Lady Bird Lake. You know, they have limited amount of space there, obviously. So we want to have as much green space there as possible. But what I saw also, I've seen some hints of, or it's unclear to me, it could also mean some newer facilities there or some upgrades to Fiesta Gardens in general, or that could be part of it. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, you know, so, so in the master planning for Fiesta Gardens, that's, you know, that's part of it. And, and, and there's not, um, there has not been yet, as of yet, uh, uh, money appropriated for the master planning construction of Fiesta Gardens. But step one is removing this. If you, if, uh, if you or your listeners were to drive down Jesse Segovia Street, about Fiesta Gardens, there's literally between the street and the river, between the street and Lady Bird Lake, you can't see anything. There's like a metal wall there that is this maintenance facility that prevents you seeing or walking down to the lake there. Um, and so this part of this proposition B would fix that. It would remediate that. But just when you're talking to folks, obviously this is something you've chosen to get involved with and spend time and energy on. Like what's, what's your pitch to folks or kind of why are you excited about uh, the property passing? Like what, what, Gets you so, about this. Um, so this hasn't happened very often. This would be like only the fourth time that the voters have been asked to, you know, trade, swap, sell parkland. Um, parkland is, you know, it's sacred here in Austin. Um, uh, we all love our parks. We don't always um, uh, prioritize them with as much funding as we would like, just because of the, uh, uh, just just because of budget constraints, but. We all love our parkland, and so if you're going to trade, if you're going to trade away parkland, you better get something of great, tremendous value in return. Um, and if and if the trade isn't overwhelmingly good, and not only will council not vote for it on the ballot, but then the voters will reject it too. And so I think that this is this is this is a way for us to jumpstart the needs of the parks and rec department. Instead of us having a bond election in a couple of years for parks that will include millions of dollars for a new 
maintenance facility. Um, uh, instead of millions of dollars to restore Fiesta Gardens, uh, or you know, tens of millions of dollars to uh, buy and preserve land along the Colorado River, we're going to get that mm-hmm. by just trading the small nine-acre piece of land. Um, and so I think it's just it's a tremendous opportunity for the city and the Parks Department, um, and that's why I got involved. that's our show for today. I know it was a lot to take in, but the key takeaway is this is an important election, so please do not forget to vote. Again, election day is November 2nd, and early voting starts on October 18th. The Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you in partnership by the Austin Common and Co-op Radio. The Austin Common is a local news source that helps Austinites be informed and make a difference in their community. You can learn more about the Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of KOOP's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. This show is hosted by me, Amy Stansbury, and produced by John Hoffner. You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Podcast. One quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really does help us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin, so thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. And a final thank you to the TR Girls, the amazing local band whose music you hear at the start and end of this podcast. You can listen to their music on Spotify or follow them on Instagram at TR Girl Band. And that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>